when I was a kid, I loved to swim just at the river, at the pool, wherever. Uh, one of my earliest memories is being at the bottom of a pool. I, I was around two years old and I had let go of the side, uh, but I made it. I lived. Uh, so thank, thank God for that. Um, so at, <laughs> my mom says I'm exaggerating. <laughs> Oh, thanks to Aunt Yvonne. Thank you, Aunt Yvonne. Um, she rescued me. Um, so when I was about nine years old, my parents signed me up for a swim team, and so I had to learn the technique of swimming. I knew how to swim, but I had to learn about how to swim uh, skillfully and competitively. So uh, if you don't know, there are four main swimming strokes. There's the freestyle or the crawl. I'm not going to demonstrate all these. Um, I'm just too tired for that today. Uh, the backstroke, the breaststroke, and the butterfly. And gradually I began to learn each one of these strokes and I became more skilled to the point that I got moved up to the, the advanced team or the, the late team. We called it the, the late practice because you, you had to swim later after the uh, the younger kids got out of the pool. So uh, in, on the advanced team, I got a new coach, Coach Sean. And uh, she was kind of scary. Uh, coach Sean was kind of scary. She was really loud, uh, very loud. And, and in a pool environment, you know, it just kind of echoes off everything. It's all the tile and the concrete. And, and she didn't um, ease me into things. She didn't care that I was a new kid. She didn't care that I was... 10 years old, uh, she just expected me to work hard and to listen to her uh, very closely. And so I tried to do that. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to prove to her that I could be a, a good swimmer. And early on in working with her, she gave us, uh, the team, a whole set of, of doing the butterfly stroke. So I knew how to do that. Uh, but it is the most complicated stroke. If you've seen it, it's the one where people's arms are going out, and it's a really beautiful uh, stroke, but it requires a lot of uh, coordination with your legs and your arms and your upper body and all these things. So uh, as I swam, I'm doing the butterfly. I'm trying to, to do it right so Coach Sean is happy and she won't yell at me, and I hear her yelling, Nathan, Nathan, because when I was younger, I was not called Nate. I was called Nathan. Uh, what are you doing? And I stopped and I said, uh, the butterfly, I think. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, and she said, no, you're not. Try it again. So I don't know why I'm not. So I just do the same thing again. And again, Nathan, what are you doing? And... Uh, you know, at this point, I'm not feeling great about my ambition as a swimmer. And finally, she clarified for me why she was yelling at me. Uh, butterfly has two kicks per arm stroke. Butterfly has two kicks per arm stroke. You are only doing one. And, you know, I thought, well, that's not how I learned how to do butterfly. My first coach... He just said, you just do this dolphin kick, and that's all you do. I didn't know I had to do two. I never learned the correct way to do butterfly. And so I was doing it wrong. If I was in a competitive race, I would have been disqualified from that race because I was not doing the stroke correctly. 
So I knew how to swim. I knew how to do most of these uh, swimming strokes well. I knew how to do the turns. I even knew that, you know, to really excel, you have to wear a Speedo. So I just submitted to that process. Uh, But I still needed instruction. I still needed correction. I still needed to be coached, even though I knew all those things already. Now, who here enjoys correction? Anyone like, I love correction. (laughs) No, it's like nobody is, is a big fan. It's not usually pleasant. But how do we learn? How do we grow? How do we improve? None of us is self-sufficient when it comes to learning something new. And we know this when it comes to learning a sport or uh, when we're learning a new subject in school or uh, maybe a new instrument or a new skill set in the place that we work or if we want to make a career change. But when it comes to the matters of life, personal matters like marriage and relationships and parenting and how we make decisions about our time and our money and our habits and our diet, we begin to, we take those things much more personally and we feel and we say, well, this is my life. You don't have any right to tell me that I'm doing it wrong. Now, when it comes to the life of following Jesus, trusting him, following him, belonging to his community, the, the church. We, we want to ask today, what is the place of correction and instruction within the life of following Jesus? Is there any room for someone to come alongside of us and point out deficiencies or weaknesses or areas that we need to grow in? And so in this passage in Acts chapter 18... We're going to come up against this question. And so we're going to see two different instances of this, of this situation or of this dilemma in the life of an individual person and in the, in the life of a community or a group of people together. And I think in this passage, in these two situations, we can see ways that we can give and receive correction and instruction as we follow Jesus together. So we're going to look at three aspects of correction in this passage. Who needs correction, the methods of correction, and or we could say the how of correction, and the last one is the heart of correction or why. What's the motivation for correction? So let's read this passage, Acts chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 23 and go all the way into chapter 19, verse 7. It's on page Uh, what is it, 927, and then it flips over to 928. So Acts chapter 18, beginning of verse 23. After spending some time there in Antioch, Paul departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, or the Messiah, was Jesus. Chapter 19, verse 1, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, thank you for giving us your word, which you say is for our correction and for our instruction to show us how to follow you and why to follow you. I pray that, that as we come to this passage in the book of Acts, that you would uncover the places in our lives where we need to be corrected and where we need to be instructed. And also that you would give us a heart of love to serve one another in this blessing of community. And would you teach us how to do this well so that we could love you and grow in our faith uh, in Jesus together as a community. So we ask you to be with us now. Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first I want to, before we get into like the specifics of this passage, just want to zoom out a little bit, look at some general things here. As we saw last week, the Apostle Paul has finished up his second missionary journey. He's come back to Jerusalem, and then he goes from Jerusalem to the city of Antioch, which is the church that has sent him out both times on these missionary journeys. So he goes back to Antioch, we could call it his home church, and there he uh, gives a report, this is what's happened, everyone's excited, they're rejoicing uh, and glad for what God has done through, through Paul. So verse 23 here tells us that, that after a period of time with the church in Antioch, uh, they send him back out. We want you to go back out, continue on your mission that God has called you to do, to, uh, to visit the churches that you've already planted and to establish new churches, particularly in the city of Ephesus. So in order for Paul to do this, to go to see the churches that he has planted, this is along the north side of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, he takes the long way to see um, to, to get to Ephesus. His end goal is I'm going to go to Ephesus and plant more churches there, but I want to see these other churches along the way. So instead of taking the easy sea voyage, he has to walk over a thousand miles on foot to go back to these churches that he has planted, that, and he wants to encourage them and strengthen them. So what an incredible sacrifice uh, on, on display here. This 
you know, Paul, we think of him as a church planner. He just went from place to place planting churches, but he loved the people in the churches that he had already planted enough to, to say, I will walk a thousand miles um, in order to see you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to check in on you, and to, to see how things are going for you. He makes a tremendous personal sacrifice for the sake of others. Now, the timeline that we're looking at here in this passage is a little bit confusing. I want to just try to give us an overview of it so it makes a little bit more sense. So we have to think of this kind of as two separate timelines or kind of like a flashback. So in, in the life of Paul, so verse 23, uh, or actually in chapter, uh, verse 22 of chapter 18, he leaves Corinth he goes to the city of Ephesus, and then he sails back and ends up in Jerusalem and Antioch. And then uh, he returns back. He has to walk a 1,000 miles, which takes a while. So, uh, and then he ends up back in Ephesus. So Paul comes back to Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 19. And so we, we can guess that there's about a year of time from the time Paul leaves Corinth and goes back and then makes his journey and ends up back in the city of Ephesus. So uh, that's what's happening in Paul's timeline. And, and verses 24 through 28 talk about this man, Apollos, and he is in the city of Ephesus in the time that Paul is gone. So they're never there at the same time, but Apollos comes to Ephesus after Paul has left to go to Jerusalem and Antioch, and Apollos leaves before Paul returns to Ephesus. Hopefully that makes sense because we're going to try to make some parallels between these two groups with Apollos as an individual and these 12 Ephesian people as a group. So we want to start with who needs correction. That's the question. And first we look at the life of Apollos. He is uh, from the city of Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Alexandria was um, a center of learning uh, intellectuals. They had a huge library in Alexandria. It was very similar to the city of Athens, which we saw back in chapter 16, but it was even more serious in its scholarship. It was well known for its scholarship. It had, uh, it, it produced a uh, Many serious Christian scholars like Clement and Origen, uh, who are uh, early church fathers, we call them. Uh, in Alexandria, there were a large population of Jewish people. They even worked to produce uh, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, which we still use today in biblical translation. It's called the Septuagint. And so Alexandria was this hub the center of learning and intellectual thought and study. And so Apollos is a person of Alexandria. He's, he's Jewish, but he's from Alexandria because Jews were often scattered all around this region. And so Apollos is in Alexandria. He is a man of study. He knows the Old Testament really well. He's enthusiastic and charismatic. It says in verses 24 and 25, that he is familiar with Jesus and his teachings, and he's come now to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Ephesus is also a very important city within the Roman Empire. And so, so Apollos is super smart. He is 
passionate, he's enthusiastic, very likable, and he's a good communicator and a good teacher. And man, if, if the guy who's getting up talking is all of those things, that's a really good package. Like, you know, if you get two out of three, that's pretty good. But he has three of three. In baseball, we would call him a five-tool player. And uh, so we could say he looks like he has the whole package. But, but the point of what Luke is telling us, Luke's the author of Acts he says, Apollos does not have the whole package. He has deficiencies. Verse 25 says, in spite of all that he does know, he is lacking something. He knows only the baptism of John. What does this mean when it says that he knows only the baptism of John? Now, this is one of those spots where we don't have a lot of information and it's difficult to discern what exactly does Luke mean when he's talking about this Apollos character. Uh, was he, a, you know, and you read, there's many resources you can read. Was he a follower of Jesus or not? Was he a false teacher? It doesn't seem that way, but some people think that he was. Um, was he filled with the Holy Spirit or not? Because it doesn't say that he was later filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of theories or ways that we could go with Apollos, but let's just go with what we do know, what Luke says explicitly here, is that he lacked something. He knew only of the baptism of John. What Luke is trying to get us to think about is John the Baptist is the forerunner for Jesus. Uh, John comes in early in the New Testament as somebody who's preparing the way for Jesus. He is saying, someone is coming. The Messiah is coming. And so John is getting people ready, and he baptizes people in preparation for the coming of Jesus. So this probably means that Apollos knows about that, but he does not know about the end of Jesus' ministry where he says, you're to go into all the nations and to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we can say Apollos knows who Jesus is. He knows about his life. He knows about his teachings. It says that he was, uh, what does the verse say in there? He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So, so he knows a lot of things about Jesus, but he may not have known about Jesus' death and resurrection. He may not have known the, the end of the story, may not have known about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happens at the beginning of Acts as we saw on the day of Pentecost. So he knew about Jesus, and yet there is still this big hole in his understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So, so that's Apollos' need of correction. Apollos needs correction because he has a hole. Now let's jump ahead to chapter 19. When Paul comes to Ephesus later, he encounters this group who also have a hole in their understanding of following Jesus. They also have a need for correction. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, this is a little bit confusing because if they're followers of John, the Old Testament is clear the Spirit of God is something that exists. So it doesn't mean that they don't know that there is a Spirit of God. What, what Luke means is they don't know that you can receive the Holy Spirit, uh, that the Holy Spirit can come live in us as, 
as uh, followers, as children of God. And so uh, Paul hears this. They don't even know that this is a thing. He finds out they're followers of John the Baptist, like Apollos, and they have an, uh, and they're even less developed in their, uh, their understanding of who Jesus is. There's just uh, minimal clarity for them on who is Jesus. We don't really know. We know who John is. We don't really know who Jesus is. And so you can imagine, going back to the swimming analogy, it was is if somebody led you to the edge of the pool and you didn't know that you could jump in. Uh, that's kind of the idea of where they are. They're standing on the edge of something and Paul is saying, do you know how to swim? And you're like, what is, they're like, what is water? I don't know. So it's, the, the analogy is breaking down quickly. Uh, but for both Apollos and the Ephesians, they, they know a lot. They're not, they're not ignorant people. They're not lazy. They're not, um, you know, they, they've spent time, serious time. They've devoted themselves to understand what is the way that God wants us to live? So, so we can't accuse them of laziness or, or ignorance, but they, they still have holes. They still have room to grow in their lives. So before we move on to the next point, we see Apollos needs correction. These Ephesians need correction. But I think that we need to take a moment to see where do we fit in to this, because I think it's really easy to acknowledge that other people have holes, <laughs> other people have need of correction. Anyone really good at doing this? I think they need to be corrected. I think they have holes. I think they have a, a gap in their understanding of how things work. Uh, so that's really easy to identify, usually for for other people. But but what about ourselves? What about us? None of us like having someone point out deficiencies or areas that we need to be corrected. But if we are following Jesus, if we want to follow Jesus, we must humbly acknowledge that we don't know everything. We have to acknowledge, I am not perfect. And everyone would say, I'm not perfect, but the reality is we often live like we think we are perfect. That, that we don't have any areas in our lives that are lacking. We, we have not arrived. None of us have arrived. I love in, uh, in 1 John, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he says in, in the next verse, if we confess our sin, if we acknowledge our deficiencies, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Apollos and these, these people in Ephesus, this is not an active area of sin, but it's the same principle of saying, if we refuse to acknowledge that we have weaknesses or deficiencies, we deceive ourselves. So we must acknowledge, we must confess our need. So even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, there are areas in your life that need correction and instruction. Even if you've been in ministry, even if you have a theology degree, even if you are well respected by influential Christians, even if you've written a book, even if you know you, even if you have a staff 
of other Christians that you, that you lead. There are always holes in our life and in our doctrine, in the things we do, the things that we believe. And it's hard to acknowledge those things, especially probably the more respected we might be or the more experienced to say like, man, I have this like, I got this area that's just really weak and immature in my life. But if we want to continue growing in following Jesus, if we want our lives to be his and not ours, we must acknowledge you and I, we have a need for correction and instruction in our lives, that it should be a regular, normal part of our Christian life. So back to the question, who needs correction? Apollos did, the Ephesians did, and you and I need correction. All right, now that we've swallowed the bitter pill, let's, let's ask, well, how then? What does this instruction or this course correction, what does it look like? How does it function? Or what are the ways that we correct and are corrected? How do we instruct and be instructed? And we can call this the, the methods of correction. So for Apollos, as he comes into the city of Ephesus, we, are, we meet again this husband and wife duo of Priscilla and Aquila. So we met them last week. They were in the city of Corinth. They traveled with Paul to Ephesus. Paul leaves them there to continue in the ministry of Jesus and goes on, and he's on his way back. But, but in the meantime, Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. They go to the synagogue, and they hear this man, Apollos, teach. And, and we can guess that they recognize his intelligence his passion, his ability to communicate. He was probably really charismatic. But in that, they also perceived his deficiencies. They noticed there's, there's something missing from this man. As gifted as he is, as, as charismatic as he is, there's something that is missing. And so what did they do? Do they start a blog about how he's a, a false teacher? Do they, do they go on social media and start talking trash about this guy? Uh, do they talk to their friends about his obvious lack of understanding? No. What do they do? It says in verse 26, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They take Apollos in. They, when it says that they took him aside we are meant to understand that they accepted him and they welcomed him, that their first interaction with him was one of, uh, we want to come alongside of you. We want to invite you into our lives and into our home. And it's in that environment and with that kind of approach that they say, here's, here's some explaining that we need to do. We need to teach you something about who Jesus is and what he's done. There's something missing and we want to tell you what that is. So they don't take it public. Their correction of Apollos is private and it's, it's done, uh, it's not a big thing. Like they don't make it a huge deal. They just say, we, we want to humbly, lovingly, with care, uh, together as, as a community, husband and wife, we just want to tell you about Jesus. And, and, and it's clear you know a lot about Jesus, but there's something missing, and we want to tell you 
what that is. Really, we need to notice this here too, is that when Luke lists this team, uh, this husband and wife, that he puts the name of the wife first here. Priscilla is listed first, and, and earlier it was the husband, Aquila, first. But uh, this means that Priscilla was probably the more prominent or more uh, knowledgeable or skilled of the two in the ways of Jesus, and that she probably took a more prominent role with Apollos and within the church in uh, Ephesus as somebody uh, who was noticeable and, and who was somebody that should be respected and admired within the church community. And she herself, she was not a bystander. She was a participant uh, and perhaps the leader in the correction and instruction of Apollo. So, so we can say as a church, we believe that God made men and women to have distinct roles and responsibilities, but, but that doesn't mean that either is greater or lesser, and that within the church of Jesus, men and women can and should learn and grow from each other. And that's very evident in this interaction with Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. So, so that's their method of correction, is to do it lovingly, in humility, in, uh, in the environment of a relationship within the home. And then we move again to Acts 19. What's Paul's method of correction and his method of instruction? He learns about the deficiencies, uh, the lack of understanding that these 12 people have. What does he do? He continues to ask questions. He says, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? We don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, I feel like my first reaction would be like, what the heck, man? Like, you don't even know, like, this is a really important thing. But Paul, he continues to ask questions. He wants to learn, what do you know? What do you understand? Where are you at when it comes to Jesus? What do you know? What do you, what do you not know? And he says, okay, then, if you, if you don't know who the Holy Spirit is, you don't know that he can, he can dwell in you. Into what then were you baptized? And they say, into John's baptism. And he explains to them. This is his method of instruction. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And so Paul goes straight to Jesus. He knows they don't know who Jesus is they don't know what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection. They don't know that Jesus has been glorified in his ascension back to the Father. They don't know that the Holy Spirit has come, the Spirit of God, to live in individual followers of Jesus. They don't know any of that, and so he instructs them in that. And so he's filling in the gaps for these people. They know the beginning of the story, and he says, let me tell you what happens next. You get to jump into this pool. You don't just stand on the edge. This is for you to live in. This is a new life for you to be a part of. So he doesn't argue with them. He doesn't shame them. He listens to them. He pays attention to where they are, and he addresses their need directly. Now, again, we have to ask, what is our place in this? Where do we belong in this story? How do we learn from the way Priscilla, Aquila, and Paul corrected and instructed these people. So here's what I think we need to do first, is we need to recalibrate our idea of what correction is uh, and its place within the life of a follower of Jesus. We default to correction is an offense. 
instruction, if we're not looking for it, is something that is offensive to us. And so because we think that, we often will shy away from correcting or talking to others about things that we see in their lives. Because we know, I would be offended if someone did that, and so I don't want to offend them. I don't want to be seen as somebody who judges others. I don't want to be perceived as unloving. And so what do we do? Nothing. Or we do something worse than nothing, which is to tell other people about the deficiencies of that person or the things that we see in their lives. But in Jesus, if we belong to Jesus, one of the ways that we can actively, tangibly serve other people is to go to them and say, this is what I see in your life, brother or sister. It is not loving to see something in someone's life and to do nothing. I think it's fair to say that when we do not go to someone because we're afraid of what they will think of us, we're not acting in their best interests. We're acting in our own best interests, which we would call selfishness. And so love is sacrificial. Christian love sacrifices for the sake of others. For Paul, he walks a thousand miles for the sake of others, and he also is willing to correct and to confront and to instruct for the sake of others. When we want to save ourselves the discomfort of pointing out something in someone's life, um, that's, that's not loving someone else. But, but if our method of correction, which is done in humility, it's done in love, it's done in gentleness, it's done by asking questions, uh, if, if those methods are there, correction can actually be a huge, huge blessing. And, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this when somebody has come to you. This just, just came to mind. You guys ever eat something and you get stuff stuck in your teeth? Does it ever happen to anyone else? Just me? <laughs> right? What is the worst thing? You get home and it's been like seven hours since you ate and you're like, it's just right in the middle. You know you've been talking to people all day and you're like, that has been there for so long. And so many people have seen me with this thing in my teeth. Why didn't somebody say something to me? So I think it is an act of love to say, hey, I don't even know who you are, man, um, but you have like, like a big thing, a cilantro in there. I know you had some fish tacos at lunch, so, so you know, no, I just want you to know that's going on. I mean, that's like a really simple illustration of this, but, but for, for the life of the church, I love in Romans chapter 12 when Paul talks about this dynamic uh, in the church, and he's speaking of a lot of different things here, but, but listen to what he says in Romans 12, beginning of verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in serving, in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I mean, this is just a list of, this is what the Christian life looks like. And, and when love is our motivation or when love is genuine, correction and instruction can be a blessing. So if you see something in the life of a brother or sister in Jesus, pray first, Lord, I just, I feel like this is there. 
You know, is this something that I should go to them about? I want to seek you about this. Is there any selfishness or pride in my own heart that's driving this? Am I just irritated or is this a preference that I have? Or is this truly something that I can come alongside them with? And then in humility, if the Lord is, is giving you the go-ahead there, which is very subjective, um, you, can, you can go to that person and just say, you know, I, I've, I've noticed this and I just want to I just want to come alongside you as a brother or sister and say, is this something um, that, that I, th- I think that we, you could use some correction here, that you could make a shift here. Maybe there's a gap in your life that you don't know about. And you can ask them some more questions. You can listen to their responses. You can speak out of the relationship you have with them. Probably not a good idea to do this with somebody you've met like one time not going to be a lot of trust built up there. So, you know, build up some, some trust. Now, if you're on the receiving end of this, and, and here's a good tip. If you're always the person who's doing the correcting and, and not getting correction, you're doing it wrong. Uh, Coach Sean needs to yell at you. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you're also on the receiving end, the same is true, then, uh, then you can also say, like, well, maybe I'm just shrinking back from being the one who would help others grow in this way. But, but if you are on the receiving end, I want to encourage you to be patient because this is not a perfect process. Even if you use the best methods you've prayed, you've come in all humility be patient when this does not go perfectly. I have been confronted with correction before in some really personal areas, and it is painful enough even if the person is 100% right. Um, but sometimes people have made assumptions that are not correct. Their assessments were not all the way accurate, and sometimes it's really, really hurtful. And, and by God's grace, we... I have been able to grow. Uh, Dallas and I as a family have learned to grow even when those encounters and those confrontations are not perfect. And so, uh, but, but the general rule here is give and receive correction and instruction in love and in humility. All right, last thing here, the heart of correction. We've seen as followers of Jesus, we all need correction. The method of correction is humble love, and we finish by looking at the heart of correction or what is the goal of correction? What's, what, what are we hoping will happen? So for Apollos, after he is corrected and instructed by Priscilla and Aquila, he is sent off to back to Corinth. He goes to Corinth uh, in his newly corrected state, we could say. And, and we already know he was smart, passionate, gifted, incredible communicator and preacher. And now we see that he, he comes into this new city, into Corinth, and he's, he's really operating in this new kind of authority and power that he did not have previously. Um, uh, Luke says, because of his response, because he responded in humility, accepted this correction, he's able to contribute and to serve and bless the new community that he has come to help. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And and so for Apollos and these other believers there, they're common recipients in grace. We've received grace, and now we can bless and serve one another. And then 
by receiving this instruction and correction, Apollos is able to um, powerfully refute those who are opposing the message of Jesus in Corinth. So uh, we could say because he received this correction, his personality and his giftings and his abilities were sharpened uh, through the correction. And so he's, again, operating in this more powerful, uh, he's able to refute. And when it says that he's able to refute, it means that he, like, body slammed his opponents uh, intellectually. Like, he, he didn't just argue with them and have debates. He was owning them in the debates. And that was because of the Spirit of God dwelling in him. And it's because of the correction and the instruction that he received. And if he had not received that correction, if he had rejected it or said, don't judge me, you don't know me, this would not have happened. And so it's through that correction that that Apollos is able to do this. And that's the goal that that Priscilla and Aquila had. We're not trying to, to just tell this guy that he's wrong. We can see that God has gifted him, and we want to sharpen that in him. We want to cultivate that in him. We want him to grow and be an even more powerful minister of Jesus. They wanted what was good for Apollos and for his church and for his mission. And then when we go to the Ephesians, uh, the same is true for Paul. His heart of correction for them was for them to fully know and, and understand Jesus' love for them and for them to trust him. And so they respond in belief. They hear the gospel, they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit. There's kind of a mini Pentecost with 12 people there in, uh, in Ephesus. And that's the result, that's the heart of why Paul was doing this with them. And, and then for us, finishing up here, turning the question on ourselves. What's the goal for us when we give and receive correction and instruction? It's the same. It's for us to know Jesus, to delight in him, to be strengthened in him, to see ultimately more and more people meeting Jesus, because Jesus is always the goal. Jesus is always the goal of, uh, of what we're doing. So it, it's, it's not ultimately about Apollos or Paul or Priscilla and Aquila. It's about Jesus. Now, to sum all these things up, when we follow Jesus, we acknowledge, we can acknowledge, we all need correction. We all have deficiencies and weaknesses. One of the greatest gifts that God gives to us in his community uh, is, is correction. And so we can grow and we can change. And the way that we do that is by correcting and instructing each other in grace and humility. And the goal is ultimately love and hope in Jesus. So, so let's give and receive instruction and correction uh, so that we might see and love and delight in Jesus more clearly and to share his love with others. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that, that even in our rebellion against you, even when we were in no place to be instructed or corrected, Uh, because we were spiritually dead. Jesus, you came for us. You came into the world not just to give us teachings, but to give yourself as a ransom for us. And now that you've done that, because that's true, we are able uh, to, to make the sacrifice of giving and receiving correction and instruction so that we might follow you more faithfully. 
And I ask that you'd help us as a church uh, to, to be faithful in this. And I pray for, for anyone who's here today that might, might be in that spot where, where they're like, I thought I knew uh, what following Jesus was all about, uh, but I'm learning that there's some gaps here, that you would reveal that to them and that they could fully believe in you and trust in you and that those gaps would be filled even now through the preaching and the hearing of your gospel. Thank you uh, that you're continuing to shape us and to mold us and to grow us and that you never give up on us. And we put our hope in you once again, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.